Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. I'm Chris Barrett, a professor at Cornell University, and I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar on better measures of land surface temperatures and solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence to improve monitoring for drought stress, crops, and crop productivity. This is a joint activity by the Food Security Portal facilitated by the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, and supported by the European Commission and of the research project Harnessing Big Data and Machine Learning to Feed the Future, which is run out of Cornell University in collaboration with IFPRI and the University of Alabama at Huntsville and funded by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. In that project, we combine the latest advances in satellite vegetation, remote sensing, and physical measurement with other publicly available near real-time data sources processed using accessible machine learning techniques to explore the potential to provide accurate, timely, and low-cost monitoring of key feed-the-future outcome indicators, such as asset poverty and nutritional status, at the sub-national community level in low-income feed-the-future countries. The resulting indicators enable higher-frequency monitoring and adaptive targeting, as well as careful impact evaluation feed the future and other interventions when combined with rigorous research design around project or program participation. Today in the first of a sequence of two seminars, we have an outstanding pair of speakers, Professor Lee Shu Hugh of the University of Alabama at Huntsville and Professor Ying Sun of Cornell University, along with an outstanding discussant, Ling Shu Yao from IFPRI. They will be discussing advances in remotely sensed measurement of land surface temperature and SIF, solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence, and associated data products generated by this research project to aid in improving the monitoring of various indicators used by the U.S. government's Feed the Future program and other partners internationally. I will serve as your moderator today. If you have any questions, please feel free to submit them in the side panel at any time where it says questions box and I'll read them during the Q&A session. We'll hold Q&A until after each of the presentations. Please note that this webinar will be recorded. The slides and recordings of the session will post on the Food Security Portal's website, as well as on our research project website hosted at Cornell University. And please note again, this is the first of a two-part webinar series. The second will focus on measures of poverty and malnutrition as predicted by feature sets such as those we discussed today, and that second webinar will again be hosted by the Food Security Portal next Wednesday, July 28th from 8 to 9.30 a.m. U.S. Eastern Daylight Time. Today, I'll introduce each speaker or panelist as they come on. To begin, I'm pleased to introduce our first presenter, Professor Li Shu Hu, who will explain the new land surface temperature data product that she and her lab have developed. Over to you, Li Shu. Thank you, Chris. Um, so, in this section, uh, I will give you a brief overview of remotely sensed land surface temperature products and our recent improvement on new data for large-scale mo uh, monitoring. When we talk about the land surface temperature, there are the two major techniques that we use to measure it, including thermal infrared and the microwave. Thermal infrared remote sensing is the primary technique that we are able to and detect land surface temperature correctly and, and with relative higher resolution than microwave uh, techniques. Those techniques as the similar kind of uh, 
sensors that you are using at home for body temperature, like the non-contact infrared thermometers. Uh, the principle of those measurement, those in thermal infrared and spectrum radiation is uh, for all the objects in the natural environment emit the radiation that primarily fall into the infrared spectrum. With this uh, spectrum range, uh, the proportion we can sense and feel directly is called thermal infrared. The thermal infrared sensors can detect uh, this uh, radiation uh, and translate it, in, it into a radiometric temperature. We call it surface temperature, which shows how hot of the surface of the Earth that will fail to touch in the given location. Satellite remote sensing techniques allow us to map this temperature at much larger scale. And this map on the right and shows uh, the, the mean July surface temperature over the land globally. For those regions with less water, like arid, semi-arid region, uh, you can clearly see a much higher temperature uh, over those domains. And uh, that's across the North Africa uh, extended to the Central Asia or uh, including the West of uh, United States. Um, LST can easily pick up signal with much higher uh, temperature at the surfaces, and that is also very sensitive to the, uh, the surface conditions or surface changes. And one thing I would like to uh, uh, note here is land surface temperature is not the same as air temperature we typically see from the weather report, although they are uh, highly correlated so that they have different physical meanings and they are detected using different instruments. What's the diagram here show is a simplified uh, of diagram of the Earth energy budget. Uh, the major source of the energy is from the sun. So the incoming solar radiation provide uh, the energies. Part of the energy has been transmitted through the atmosphere and the, uh, more than, a little bit less than half of the pro total proportion of the energy has been absorbed by the surfaces. Um, because we have different land cover types, soils, water, and uh, vegetations, uh, those different surface, uh, thermal property of surfaces uh, will uh, be uh, reflect a different temperature. And uh, those surfaces will uh, emit uh, a long wave radiation back to the atmosphere. And uh, because uh, they have showing different in temperature, the total amount of energy emitted back to atmospheres are different. Um, the proportion of the total emitted energy um, partly can be transmitted through the atmosphere and eventually detected by the sensors in the space. Um, with what we have knowing uh, the, uh, the condition of atmosphere, atmosphere and surface conditions combined, we are able to retrieve the uh, land surface temperature through, uh, from the measurement from the satellite directly. The LST or land surface temperature drives the uh, drives the long uh, long outgoing long wave radiation and turbulent heat fluxes at the interface between the land and atmosphere. Um, there, uh, therefore, it is routinely used as key in, uh, input to the land surface models uh, for drought monitoring, soil moisture estimations, and evapotranspiration estimates. In addition to their wide application in agriculture sector, uh, we can use, for example, for crop monitoring and product prediction. It also has been used to conduct research on global regional clim climate, uh, heat wave, and drought detection, and 
and the regional and local phenomena such as uh, uh, urban heat island effects or ecosystem disturbance. Also, the temperature uh, support to map the habitats, uh, like we can use that for vector-borne disease transmission studies. A growing volume of global LST products in the past three decades have offered us valuable resources for study spatial temporal pattern and trends of the surface conditions. Satellite uh, pro um, products offer theoretical, large-scale, low-cost, and near-real-time observations. From the animation on the left, you can see the monthly LST changes over the past two decades from MODIS. This is a sensor on board Terra satellite and Alpha satellites. Uh, and this um, monthly changes, you can see clearly a spatial shifting of the uh, high temperature hotspot across a uh, global and indicate the different heating and, um, in a, a seasonally and interannually. Based on this long record, we are also able to detect the thermal anomalies at the global scale, uh, which is showing on the right. So this anomaly is, uh, is when the condition depart from the average condition for a particular place uh, at a given time. Places that uh, are warmer than the average will show indicate at the red, and uh, which is cooler will indicate at the blue. So you can see the, uh, the large shifting monthly from the uh, sun region was much warmer uh, during the particular time of the day. Um, some of the abnormally warm cold patterns may be due just due to the uh, red and weather phenomenon, but some anomalies that are showing particular interesting pattern or trend that are meaningful for us uh, for study the surface. For example, small patch warm anomaly that appear in the forest or in other natural ecosystem may indicate deforestation or insect damage. And also, if we see a warm anomaly that persists over a large part of the globe for many years, that can be a sign of global warming. Here are the two examples I wanted to show you um, the during extreme events. Uh, the map on the left is uh, showing the land surface temperature anomaly for Australia in the first week of uh, January in 2013, that during the uh, extreme heat uh, waves. And over the Australia, you can see uh, the temperature anomaly can reach as, as much as 15 degrees uh, indicated at the dark red on the map. And also we can using LST to map the plant stress. And the figure on the right is uh, a comparison of the plant stress index that derived from the LST and uh, then map the Western United States heat, uh, heat impact or drought impacts. And uh, so from the 2019 October, you can see this represents a relative normal condition. So redder of the color indicate a more stress of the vegetation. And uh, um, the next plot here of map is in 2020, which showing much darker of the red and showing a widespread of stress over the vegetation there. Uh, you also can see the blue dot there indicates some irrigations that apply to some of the agriculture areas. But for non-irrigated parts, then you can definitely see a much um, clear uh, drought impact on the vegetation. 
even though um, there is a, a growing uh, availability of uh, LST in the recent decades, there are some major gaps remain in LST products for accurately representing vegetation stress and drought severity spatially and temporally. Here is a summary of major thermal infrared sensors or satellites that offer LST products. I group them into three categories that are based on the different spatial resolution, uh, which means how fine of the each grid that can resolve on the uh, uh, surfaces. And, uh, uh, and also as well as their temporal resolution, that means how frequently we can get the, uh, the thermal scans over the, uh, the region of interest. So for those um, gray dots that uh, those are the sensors offer very high spatial resolution at 100 meter level, uh, like Landsat or recent EcoStress or Aster. Those products are not able to provide a consistent global LST due to usually long, very long revisit periods. So that means every 16 days they can have a map. So it's, it's really hard to make a global map that, uh, that, that measure the same day. And the group of the blue dots here and are the examples of geostationary satellite. Each satellite can scan a proportion of Earth surfaces at the relative high temporal frequency ranging from sub-hourly to hourly observations. Due to the high orbital altitude of this type of remote sensing system, um, and this satellite only um, provide relative core spatial resolution to a few kilometer uh, and and also it requires several satellites combined together to cover the majority of the global surfaces. And then the green dots here indicate uh, those uh, satellites that like MODIS, AVHRR, or VIRS, that offers twice a day observation at a resolution about one kilometer resolution. Uh, and also this satellite provides relatively longer records of the measurement compared to uh, the regional uh, like high resolution satellites. Overall, and you can see uh, with all the existing products, there's a trade-off existed between the spatial temporal resolution of LST products, which mainly determined by the satellite missions. Currently available LST products summarized here have either low spatial resolution uh, or low revisit, revisit frequencies. And so that we are not able to fully resolve the, the diurnal cycle of this uh, uh, at that scale. And also the different products offer a variety of periods. <clears throat> Thermal remote sensing also is challenged by missing data due to cloud cover uh, obstructions. Um, like thermal radiation cannot penetrate through the clouds. If there are clouds, we only see the cloud top temperature instead of surface underneath the clouds. So you can see the example on the, under, uh, at the bottom here, the map, we often see the missing data during the cloudy seasons or, or during the, uh, the cloudy regions. So if we are simply just average the all clear sky maps, like the animation that we showed before, just, um, just simply average a composite all the clear sky map and to generate a comprehensive uh, map, um, but we, we can face many uncertainties. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Uh, face many uncertainties because, for example, if uh, for one pixel we only have uh, most of the uh, nighttime observations available, compared to other location we have uh, all uh, clear uh, all um, uh, 24 hour observations. When we simply average that, then that you definitely can tell there are some biases, the low biases of the first observations. So if we are simply treat all clear sky uh, data sim uh, the same, 
that can cause the biases for monthly, monthly composite uh, that uh, can be problematic in many quantitative analyses. Even with a cloud impact, uh, the LST observation timing is largely limited to a few windows determined by the uh, orbit types. Uh, particularly if we want to use relative high resolution data, uh, for example, MODIS, at most uh, we will have four observations from MODIS on board of two uh, twin satellites. So you can see the, time, uh, the red dots that indicate the, uh, the observation of the satellites. And uh, um, the, the timing, the windows, it, de it determined by the latitude locations. So often maybe we are not able to obtain the maximum or minimum temperature. Therefore, there's no way we will be able to calculate the diurnal temperature range or to calculate the means that uh, analog to the temperature mean, monthly mean or daily mean temperature we typically use uh, uh, in, the, in the weather related study or from the weather forecast. So therefore, our goal is to produce a new monthly product that overcomes all aforementioned gaps in the existing product, especially we were using uh, a physics-based diurnal temperature cycle models that synthesize uh, multiple sources of information uh, with re realistic, uh, realistic and timely representation of LST. So the, the DTC model or diurnal temperature cycle model allow us to numerically fit uh, the diurnal cycles and over clear skies or partial clear skies. So we call this a pseudo clear sky conditions based on the few observations uh, at any time of a day. Such information allow us to generate a true time consistent daily mean or to estimate the daily maximum minimum of LST for seasonal and inter-annual trend analysis. Two freely available data are used. First, we will build on the hourly five kilometer LST from geostationary satellites and uh, um, that we're using the data, rich temporal information to train and uh, DTC model. And then we were using trained uh, models, provide some uh, necessary parameters and to simulate them, the modest data, which have a much higher spatial resolution at one kilometer, and, uh, but only have a few available observations. Uh, with that, we are able to uh, simulate the diurnal cycle of the observations. Here, the dots indicate the observed, uh, the points that we observed, but we are can construct the hourly observation. Therefore, we can calculate the 24-hour daily mean and also daily maximum minimum of temperature and also mean diurnal range uh, of the temperature. Um, as a part of the experiment, we tested the um, capability of the DTC model for uh, filling the temporal missing data due to cloud coverage or other reasons. Uh, this scattered plots show that uh, showing x-axis is a DTC uh, estimated daily maximum temperature, and the, the y-axis indicate is uh, the uh, the maximum temperature based on all available clear sky uh, observations. And the left plenum is for the ma daily maximum, and this the the right scatter plot is for the daily mean. Um, the color of each dot indicate the number of the observation available in a diurnal cycle. So you can clearly see if we have a clear sky conditions, uh, the modeled results and observed results are matched very well. And uh, but for those um, 
green and uh, or bluish dots that indicate much less observations during the diurnal cycles, we can observe a much strong uh, low bias for the uh, maximum temperatures and also the uh, underestimation or overestimation of the daily mean temperature. And those can be uh, efficiently corrected using the, the DTC uh, model um, simulations. So we also validate this approach using ground observation of more than 30 global flux sites that from the flux next. And then we estimate the all-sky monthly LST from the globally across different land covers. Uh, from this uh, scatter plot, you can clearly see uh, our uh, DTC simulated the mean values uh, is outperform the other two um, compare uh, two products. One is five five kilometer, uh, kilometer uh, geostationary based products. One is what we commonly use to simply average the results. And also uh, the comparison across different land covers then showing uh, that performance is pretty consistent across the different land cover types. Uh, each arrow here, start point is the simple composite against uh, the ground truth, and the end is uh, indicate the, the our simulated products. Uh, results. So you can see uh, most of the results is showing uh, close to zero mean of differences, also considerably reduce the RMSE across different land cover types. At last, uh, I'd like to illustrate the example to explore the relationship between uh, the moisture, uh, soil moisture anomalies with our simulated LST products uh, across US and to understand its sensitivity to drought. And this is a, a plot and showing during the growing season um, how the uh, LST anomalies are to uh, determine the soil moisture anomalies. And this y-axis indicate the R-square. So you can see um, the maximum temperature LST and generally showing much higher uh, determ uh, determination uh, of coefficients uh, compared to the mean. And during August, which is typically the hottest um, month in a year, um, that we can see um, the, the maximum temperature showing much improved the sensitivity to the soil, soil, uh, soil moisture anomalies. Um, that if um, as LST is also largely influenced by the regional meteorological condition and also has reflected some anomalies with the vegetation status, uh, we believe that incorporate, uh, incorporating those factors and those new uh, products will considerably improve the detecting and monitoring the agricultural drought uh, compared to the existing products. To summarize, uh, our newly monthly LST uh, products were developed by fusing multiple public uh, open data set uh, using a diurnal temperature cycle model. Uh, we have generated this new LST product uh, over about 10 uh, feet of future countries defined by the USAID. Uh, in the recent years, but the data is available, uh, but the source data is from the global uh, data products, so their potential can expand to other regions and uh, to the future as well. So the high resolution products has improved the temporal representation and offers new and critical diurnal LST information. And we have shown the new maximum estimates are more sensitive to soil moisture condition for drought and crop monitoring. And at last, uh, that is a full reference for uh, this paper uh, we just, uh, I just introduced. Thank you very much. 
thank you very much, Lucia. That's really outstanding work. Very exciting development in measuring temperature and making those data available to researchers as we begin to focus at higher spatial and temporal resolution. Thank you for an excellent presentation. Uh, just as a reminder to our audience, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them in the side panel at any time where it says questions box, and I'll read them during the Q&A session that will follow our discussants remarks. Uh, next, we have a presentation from the second member of our team, Professor Ying Sun. She will explain the new solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence, or SIF, data product that she and her lab have developed to complement the LST work just described by Professor Yu. Over to you, Ying. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, hello, everyone. It's my great pleasure to present our recent work funded by USAID on the uh, remote sensing of solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence, SIF, and how we use that for applications in estimating crop productivity, which is highly related to the food security prediction. So this work was uh, led by my uh, student, Jia Mingwen, uh, Long Long Yu, and also postdoc Oscar. Next, please, thank you. So let me first give you a um, one-on-one of solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence. So um, if you look at this diagram, so all the plant molecules uh, with chlorophyll A content, uh, the, they absorb the sunlight and the majority of the absorbed uh, photons are going to drive photosynthesis. So under normal conditions, more than 80% of the total absorbed solar photons are used uh, along this pathway, photosynthetic pathway. Um, and the remaining portion can be lost as a heat. And this process is called non-photochemical quenching or NPQ. And a very, very tiny fraction under normal conditions, less than 5%, uh, those, uh, uh, those absorbed photons uh, can be used at, uh, can be re-emitted at a longer wavelength. And this is called uh, chlorophyll fluorescence. So because chlorophyll fluorescence emission occurs during the actual photosynthetic machinery process. So it carries direct information ab about uh, plant activity. So it has been used as a, a probe for uh, plant photosynthesis in vivo. So this chlorophyll fluorescence emission from the plant is actually a very distinct glow that is specific to green plants with chlorophyll A uh, content. Next. So this figure shows uh, that uh, during a student training session, so the student is wearing a, a special goggles here in order to visualize uh, this glow emitted from the plants. So this goggle actually has a low pass filter uh, which uh, can block the visible light so that only the uh, glow emitted from the plant can be seen. So if you look at here, these are these red pinkish color is actually the uh, uh, chlorophyll fluorescence emission. Next one. So if you look at the emission spectrum of uh, SIF here, it actually covers a spectrum range from 650 to 800 nanometers. There are two peaks, one is in the red peak. As you can see, this red peak overlaps with the visible light, which are visible to human eyes. The other peak is far red which is not visible to human eyes unless you wear a goggle, which you show in the previous picture. Next one. So the advantage of chlorophyll fluorescence 
is that it provides direct information on plant function, plant functioning, or plant photosynthesis. So it does not only provide the structural information. Uh, for example, how much light is absorbed by the antenna system. Uh, so the structural information can actually be monitored by conventional vegetation remote sensing techniques. For example, vegetation indices, say NVVI, enhanced vegetation indices, EVI, and other similar sorts of vegetation indices, or LAI leaf area indexes, which give you the information of how green the, uh, the leaves are and how many leaves are there. So those uh, vegetation indices or, or, LAI, or LAI basically give you uh, the information on structural variation of vegetation or plants but they do not provide information on the physiological variation of plants, which SIF can. So the physiological variation means how efficiently is the light being used by plants under the same light conditions. So SIF provides both the structural variation and the physiological information of plants, and it can potentially provide early warning of any stress signal result from water stress or heat stress or even light stress. Um, uh, so, which cannot be uh, previously possible with the conventional vegetation indices or LAI. Next. So, the this the diagram on the very left shows uh, how this uh, uh, leaf molecular level signal of chlorophyll fluorescence can be monitored with remote sensing skills uh, from the ground-based towers. Uh, UAVs or airplanes, and also through the satellite. So this is a really a cross-scale um, um, uh, phenomenon that can be monitored by various of uh, remote sensing platforms. So from the satellite platform, the figure this figure uh, from the the second from the left shows the OCU2 satellite, which is one of the leading uh, uh, satellite missions that has the safe uh, measurement capability. Um, and the third uh, figure from the left shows airborne measurement, uh, which uh, shows the chlorophyll uh, uh, measurement, uh, chlorophyll content, and also uh, safe measurement. So what it, this shows is that safe measurement can actually provide more spatial variation than the traditional vegetation indices and chlorophyll content. Um, on the very right hand side, uh, this figure shows the concurrent UAV uh, measurement and the ground measurement of uh, chlorophyll fluorescence in conjunction with hyperspectral measurements. So this is actually from a cornfield in our site uh, at Cornell Research Farm. Next. So uh, this uh, whole diagram shows that SIF uh, uh, can be monitored in real time uh, from several minutes to whole decades. And in terms of spatial scale, it can range from field scale to the global scale. Next. So SIF has uh, wide applications in um, uh, terrestrial ecology, agricultural productivity, drought monitoring, um, which all these processes are also feedback to the climate. Uh, so there have been a wide applications since the first advent of SIF retrievals. So this figure shows uh, uh, this overall distribution of SIF emission in Africa. Uh, you can see that in Eastern Africa, there is a high emission, which is due to uh, uh, crop uh, um, photosynthesis. 
so this hotspot can actually be uh, well captured by um, fluorescence. Next. And uh, so again, the application can uh, vary from various scales, from canopy scale, uh, from leaf scale to canopy scale to regional and global scales. And it has been um, uh, used for like a global ecological monitoring. For example, looking at like the tropical rainforests, uh, 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 plant productivity and carbon sink and carbon sources, and also at the regional scale to look at uh, the um, the crop production and the productivity and also drug monitoring at at uh, regional scales. But of course, at local scales, we can also uh, look at uh, understand the mechanisms of how drought and heat and also light stress influence productivity. Next. So there has been a growing volume of satellite uh, data set uh, to infer plant productivity and uh, how stress influence uh, plant productivity. So if you look at this um, top panel, which shows the first global SIF product from the GoSat satellite. So GoSat is a joint, uh, is a satellite mission uh, 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 joint launched by uh, NASA and a Japanese space agency. So uh, this product became available since 2011. So this figure shows the um, annual average of the, the safe emission across the globe. So from this, you can see the warmest color is shows the highest emission, which uh, is in the pantropic, pantropics. Uh, so this indicates that the highest safe emission is in the tropical rainforest, which not surprising because uh, they, on the annual scale, they show highest uh, uh, productivity. But uh, when we look at the summer peak, which I'm going to show in a minute, uh, during the peak summer uh, uh, season in the Northern Hemisphere, the uh, US Corn Belt actually shows the highest productivity, which even has higher uh, uh, productivity than the tropical rainforest. When you look at the bottom panel scatter plot, it shows the Y axis shows the GPP, which is the photosynthesis and the x-axis is a sieve. So different colors represent different vegetation types. You can see that they show high linear relationships for all different types of vegetations. So this is kind of promising. Uh, and uh, the advantage compared to the conventional vegetation indices is that um, uh, uh, it, it, uh, so for example, for uh, some uh, under sub-optimal uh, sub, uh, uh, conditions, the vegetation can still remain green, but the photosynthesis can already uh, be in sub uh, substantially uh, suppressed. So under these conditions, vegetation indices are not very useful, but the fluorescence can already give you a signal. Next one. Uh, so right now there are already a number of ongoing missions and also a number of upcoming missions. So if you look at the, uh, the, uh, the, the missions on the left, uh, with solid color filling, uh, it shows the past and and the current still operational satellite missions. Uh, they cover different time period, and some of them are already um, uh, retired. For example, Skamaki, and uh, the bottom few uh, missions, uh, those uh, with a dashed uh, line, uh, they are upcoming missions. So for example, for the Temple and the Sentinel-4, they were originally scheduled to be launched in 2019 or 2020, but they are always uh, delays due to technical issues, but they are going to be launched soon. 
Um, so all these satellites, they uh, will provide a number of like massive measurement, safe measurement in the future that can help us for uh, crop productivity monitoring. Next one. However, there are limitations of the existing satellite safe products. Uh, the major uh, limitation is that the low spatial resolution. So if you look at the middle panel, uh, this is from GOM2 uh, uh, sensor. Uh, if, uh, so uh, the, the, the resolution is 40 by 40 kilometers. Uh, so the GOM2 right now has longest uh, time coverage since 2007 to now more than one decade. So GOM2 is among all the existing product that has longest uh, time record. However, the course resolution prevents its operational application for agriculture monitoring. Uh, so uh, uh, so th this is one of the major limitations. And another limitation is large spatial gaps. So if you look at the right panel, which shows the measurement from OCO2. So uh, for individual measurement, uh, you can see the resolution is 1.3 by 2.25 kilometers, which is much finer than GOM2 but there are large spatial gaps. So for each orbital measurements, uh, there are uh, large spatial gaps between the orbits. Um, another uh, shortcoming is that the very uh, short time period, for example, tropomy measurement on the very left, it tends to overcome the, relative, the, the course resolution of GOM2 and the spatial gaps of OCO2, uh, but the time period is very short. It was only launched in uh, late 2017, and data was only available since 2018. So this prevent us to really take advantage of this long-term measurement in the past uh, to look at, um, at the uh, uh, you know how our current state compared to the historical uh, period. So our goal of this project is to develop high-resolution, global contiguous, and long-term safe records. So to do that, we developed two products. The first product is to gap fill OCO2 a SIF, and the second product is to downscale GOM2 and Skamaki, which is another satellite, which uh, is already retired, but uh, the data record for Skamaki started from 2002. Uh, and then once we downscale both GOM2 and Skamaki, we then harmonized both uh, data sets to create this long-term time series. So these are the two major products we created in our uh, group. And both products were, uh, uh, were derived using machine learning techniques uh, constrained with plant physiology. So we didn't use uh, the machine learning as a black box, but try to uh, incorporate our like, knowledge, uh, expert knowledge to constrain our machine learning models. So let's first talk about our product one which is gap filling of OCO2 SIF. This paper was published um, in Geophysical Research Letter. Uh, so if you look at the left panel, it shows original SIF, uh, original OCO2 SIF along the orbits. You can see the large spatial gaps across the globe. And once we apply our approach to gap fill, uh, this, the original SIF product, uh, you can see this um, global contiguous, global spatially contiguous safe product. And this figure shows the first half of August in 2015. Um, and clearly you can see the corn belt stands out with highest emission, means highest productivity because of the 
a large uh, C4 uh, or the C4 dominance in this region. And other high safe emission regions are in, uh, in China and also India, which also has a high uh, uh, crop coverage. And these high safe emission uh, even um, outperform uh, or has high higher productivity than the tropical rainforest in the in the northern hemisphere uh, uh, summer. Next, so when we zoom into the United States, so we can see that uh, there are uh, much more spatial details that can be revealed from this higher resolution data set. For example, the Corn Belt and also the um, the rice and soybean production along the Mississippi uh, River. Um, uh, which can never been revealed from the original uh, SIF product. And when we uh, uh, look at compared to the EVI, the enhanced vegetation indices, so EVI is the enhanced version of NDVI. So when we look at that, it's very hard to distinguish the, uh, 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 the crop region from the surrounding uh, temperate uh, deciduous forest because they have relatively the same level of um, vegetation indices because simply because they are they are both very green, but actually their plant productivity are very different, which can only be revealed from SIF. Next one. So our product two is to downscale and harmonize GOM2 and Skamaki in order to create this long-term record. And this data was actually the one used uh, for our um, poverty mapping. Uh, which uh, will be presented in the webinar too. So this paper was published uh, last year in Remote Sensing of the Environment. So when we look at the downscaled GOM2 SIF at uh, 0.05 degree, again, we see this, uh, uh, this highest emission during the summer uh, uh, in the US Corn Belt and also in China uh, uh, and a little bit in the, US, uh, in the Europe, which shows the highest SIF emission. And uh, when you compare the original uh, GOM2 and the Skamaki at half degree and one degree, which are shown on the top panel, with our downscaled product, which are uh, in the bottom panel, you can clearly see much, much more spatial details can be revealed uh, from our uh, uh, value-added uh, products. So, the, uh, so these uh, high-resolution data set can enable new applications. Uh, uh, as I bulleted here. Uh, so in our setting here, um, we want to um, emphasize two important applications. One is to estimate crop yield. Uh, and we use the US Corn Belt and also India, the uh, wheat production region as example to showcase uh, the, the power of uh, the high resolution SIF in crop yield um, uh, mapping. And uh, uh, also, our uh, product have also been used for uh, poverty and malnutrition uh, prediction, which will be presented in the next webinar. Next one. So here, specific to Africa, uh, this figure shows the safe spatial distribution in Eastern Africa. So from the original GOM to SIF uh, on the left and also on the right hand side, you can clearly see the differences and a lot of the spatial details can be revealed. Uh, you can see the, uh, the spatial variations uh, within, um, within the, like subdomains. And also compared to the original OCO2 SIF with our uh, gap field SIF, 
again, we see uh, a lot of like hot spots that can never be uh, uh, captured by the original uh, safe product. Next one. And when we look at the, you know, the capability of SIF in characterizing the impact of drought on the plant productivity, we use one example of drought in uh, 2015. Uh, first, we look at precipitation, the left panel uh, using uh, the CHIRPS dataset. Uh, we look at the anomaly. So here, the anomaly means the deviation of that specific year and that specific month compared to the long-term average. So if you see a red color, that means it is like a negative anomaly, means it is drier. If you see a, a blue color, that means it is wetter than the uh, average condition. So you see in August 2015, there is a, a, a wide uh, spread, a regional wide uh, uh, precipitation, negative precipitation anomaly in this study domain. Concurrently, we see uh, the reduction of EVI, negative anomaly, and also reduction of SIF. So, but when you look at the EVI and the SIF, their uh, uh, spatial distribution are, are different. So SIF covers a larger area of the uh, drought impact than EVI. And when we look at November 2015, the precipitation has um, uh, mostly returned to normal. Uh, you see more of like a positive anomaly in November. But there are some still like uh, uh, legacy effect on the vegetation side, uh, which can be seen from the EVI and the SIF. And again, SIF shows like higher impacted region than EVI. Uh, in terms of the uh, application in the yield estimation, we tested we uh, tested a framework of using SIF to estimate. Uh, the uh, yield in diverse landscapes. So we chose both the U.S. Corn Belt and India, Northern India, the wheat belt as uh, examples. Uh, so uh, the, these two figures shows the, the general areas that we are working on. Next. So here I simply show the R square and RMSE and the top row shows the US Corn Belt and the bottom row shows the India. So when you compare the SIF uh, with the EVI and the conventional EVI and the uh, DVI, we see a higher R square and a lower RMSE for SIF based yield prediction for both uh, US Corn Belt and the India, um, the, the wheat production. So uh, we are, uh, so this shows like the promise of using SIF for uh, yield prediction. Uh, so we started from the US Corn Belt and, uh, and India because in these regions, we have good quality and quantity of data set for validation and training, uh, but we are currently testing framework uh, to, uh, uh, to, to see whether this is apl applicable in uh, uh, poor countries uh, in Africa. Uh, and we're testing an uncalibrated uh, model to see whether it works because the uncalibrated model will hold great potential uh, uh, that can avoid uh, using substantial quantity and high quality uh, ground data for uh, calibration, uh, which is a very, so those ground data are very hard uh, to collect and very time consuming and the quality control would be also a, a you know, big issue. So if we can use SIF to uh, take advantage of the uh, the um, the uh, mechanistic uh, linkage between SIF 
and uh, uh, with photosynthesis, then we can actually use that to uh, have a, a, a uncalibrated model uh, to estimate the crop productivity. Next one. So in summary, uh, we first created two high-resolution global contiguous uh, safe products using machine learning and constrained by our domain knowledge. And these products can be used for yield prediction and drought monitoring and poverty prediction, and of course, other ecological applications. And the last point is more on like future research directions uh, so that we can uh, enhance the utility of safe in agriculture uh, monitoring. Uh, so uh, in my uh, opinion, I think the number one uh, uh, priority direction is to bring together the safe photosynthesis theoretical uh, linkage and the crop prediction models so that we can have um, uncalibrated model uh, that is scalable uh, to be used uh, to estimate crop yield. And number two is to fully resolve the spatial heterogeneity of SIF uh, in regions with very complex, fragmented, and heterogeneous landscapes. So right now we are having this 0.05 degree, which when we look at the regional or global scale are, are great. Uh, but when we really look at uh, local scale or field scale, this resolution is still too coarse. So uh, we are trying to uh, develop uh, better algorithms to resolve these finer spatial details in the future. So with these two um, um, uh, directions being focused in the future, then uh, I think we can fully utilize the, uh, the safe product for uh, uh, yield prediction and also uh, the, uh, the uh, poverty mapping. Thank you, that's all I have, thank you. Thank you very much, Ying. I, I trust our audience can appreciate how exciting it is to see both of these pieces of, of our broader project, the, the piece on land surface temperature described previously by Professor Hu and this piece on solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence SIF described by Professor Sun, how these fill in really important gaps in key earth observation measures as we try to understand patterns of agricultural productivity and poverty and malnutrition, especially in areas where we, we don't have high frequency, uh, spatially dense, reliable measurement from ground-based platforms. Um, as, as a data consumer myself, I was even unaware of the various measurement challenges that existed in the sorts of data products that I and others in my research group have long used. It's been fascinating to, to watch this process unfold and to learn so much about how these really crucial measures have been generated and their deficiencies and been super impressed to watch uh, Professor Hu and Professor Sun and their teams really help to, to, to extend the current frontier on measurement of these essential uh, indicators we have. So thank you very much, Ying, for that excellent presentation. Uh, just as a reminder to our audience, if you have questions, please submit them in the side panel at any time through the questions box. We'll address those in the Q&A session, which will follow the remarks by our discussant. We're now fortunate to have Dr. Lengxi Yao, who's a senior research fellow at IFPRI, deeply steeped in, in these wide variety of geospatial data sets and their quality and their origins. So eager to hear your thoughts, Lengxi. Over to you. Okay. Thank you, Chris. So 
I'm glad to I don't have slides. So I just follow what actually Chris already said a lot of things I want to say. So I, I hope it's going to be short. They said, so it's not too technical. So I don't have slides in general on the use of satellite data in particular and for the agriculture and policy analysis. Um, and the first point I want to make is first of all, satellite-based remote sensing have found more and wide application as Chris mentioned, agriculture and food security research. I would say, you know, this is, this is maybe science the first satellite went to sky in the 1960s. In particular, recently, I would say it's two factors actually driving this trend, you know, why kind of get more and more uh, uh, application. The one is the rapidly increased public availability of fine to moderate resolution satellite imagery. Actually, a lot of um, the, the satellite uh, mission, uh, Professor Sen and Professor Hu presented is the recent uh, kind of satellite, you know, I think it's, it's a huge uh, jump from old satellite. Namely, I mean, this Landsat kind of operational land imager and it's, a, you know, the European Space Agency Sentinel-1, Sentinel-2, and of course, this uh, this this uh, uh, CIF kind of satellite also. I think the second, maybe actually everybody knows is the machine learning technique. Actually, you can see in the presentation, they use a lot of machine learning technique. They provide the capacity to process and analyze the big data. You know, that is, I mean, even I would say has been even five years ago is 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 not possible. So that I think this is feed whatever this I know the speed futures um, uh, uh, this uh, 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 project's goal is provide continuous you know uh, opportunity to accurate timely lower cost of the monitor okay feed the field indicators. This is this uh, feed this goal. Another one I would say you know why the satellite products almost real time cover wide geographically very cheaply. But using data, particularly for lung specialists, as Chris also mentioned, is still a challenge. I would say it's again the devil is indeed in the details. Temporarily, temporary spatial resolution, ground tracing, accuracy, consistency of different satellites. This already all the uh, questions already mentioned by, by the two presenters. Means observations due to cloud cover or even satellite malfunctions. You know, this is kind of satellite missions have have kind of cycle, right? This one. This is where Professor Hu per se comes in. They are the experts who did a quote unquote dirty work to produce the clean, formate, you know, lightly formulated product. So long experts can access using. I must admit um, the data work is great is great resource, but I would say in, even in the past it is under undervalued yeah, a lot of, uh, uh, by a lot of lung experts or the users, the consumers, as Chris mentioned, the consumer, and get more and more attention right now. I feel at home almost sympathetic for, for Professor Hu and Sam because as Chris Orsman, I myself play a similar role at IPRI. I must say I'm one, only one of the few, few non-economists hired by IPRI. Part of my job is have IPRI researchers. I must say, I must add, they are the best economists in the world to be able to use more and more spatial data, including satellite, satellite product. Yeah. So today's two presentations focus on two important indicators, land surface temperature and the, the crop productivity. Professor Hu cleverly used a data fusion method to combine multiple sources of existing global land surface temperature product in a physical-based uh, uh, diurnal temperature cycle model and produce a new monthly uh, land surface product at the final one kilometer resolution. Professor Sen has been producing this CIF product for several years as I'm, I'm a big fan of, of her work. I have actually, I have uh, followed her work for a long time. I know her very well. And, and it's, it's really, 
I we I mean including myself, a lot of users, I can appreciate her continuous effort contributing to the community. Pre uh, Prefer Sam presented two high resolution global contiguous CIF product. Use a machine learning technique. And then of course, there's a lot of uh, applications too. I will, I mean, as the other, I'm a lot of comment on the presentation per se. In fact, both the presentations are are most mostly based on peer-reviewed papers, popular top journals in their field. As I'm a researcher myself, I'm a firm believer of peer review as, and again, quote, unquote, golden standard, I trust the quality of the work. And there are a lot of ventures of further comments on, you know, on the quality on that thing. Rather, I'll focus on what is more than could be done. You know, I mean, that is a kind of later extension to any excellent research. I guess, I mean, if another discussion would say the same thing, I hope. For the land surface temperature, professor who already produced that, already produced lightly, I think it's, I think it's mainly on the monthly, kind of monthly mean temperature. I wonder if we can produce a daily product or include minimum max temperature using similar approaches. I know, you know, as we know, the, we know from, from our experience now, extreme climate event is more and more critical damage to society. That have, you know, what we show, we have demonstrated in the, the uh, recent, uh, uh, heat waves in the West uh, US and the uh, flood last week, even in West Europe, right? At that time, and doing this climate event, climate extreme event daily, you know, daily, even even some some daily kind of temperature, you know, and the climate uh, even rainfall, right? And also we have one extreme, not just mean, also minimum maximum. It's a fundamental parameters for many studies being extreme in, in that kind of research. I'm sure, Professor, who you know might be better than me. Know the daily rainfall data. I think uh, Professor Sin already mentioned in her presentation, CHIRP's data, right? The rainfall estimate from rain gauges and satellite observation by UC Santa Barbara, I think, Santa Barbara. This data set, I mean, have widely used and have replaced, I mean, we used to use the CRU data by uh, University of East Anglia. Now, with this data set, a lot of people using it, you know, and then have a huge, huge impact. The CIF has an even wider application, I think, I think particularly in the so-called Statistics from Space Initiative. I, again, my, I myself have done research in this area. You know, I, again, I, my infamous spam model actually trying to produce global crop maps using data fusion method, you know, of fusion satellite data and official statistics, but this is old technology. But even right now with the, 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 with the more, uh, Satellite, uh, satellite, uh, get more and more satellite data, uh, avail data available, higher resolution, higher frequency, and more accurate uh, 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 ground data and a better machine learning technique. Identify crop types. You know, we want to go to crop types. You know, is I mean, we can do it with other other product, but I, again, again, identify estimated crop yield in particular for small plots, as I think Professor you already mentioned in your presentation. Smallholder agriculture in developing countries like in Africa, their plot is quite small. Their uh, 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 crop pattern is quite diverse. It's very hard. I think this is where you know this sieve come come in. Currently, we use NDVI as you said EVI, but we know this vegetation a lot of good indicators. As actually you already mentioned in your presentation, you know estimate huge variable this yield. I think this is the sieve can provide alternative. At least uh, as you showed in your presentation, this is a huge potential potential to help, I think, this community to actually get good uh, estimate of crop specific yield in the smallholder agriculture uh, challenge. Again, 
again, as, as you already mentioned, the challenge is again to have better SIF data and we have more validation application to show the superiority of SIF versus other normal vegetation index. I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I, what I'm trying to say is I'm very excited about the work you guys are presenting. I just ask more. Of course, also what I'm trying to say is also ask our donor to put the first money to the research. It seems like cliche, but I hope it's just really what I and get really research who, 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 who is kind of excited about this new, uh, the new product, the new new research direction would recommend for any excellent piece of work. Chris, back to you. Well, thank you very much, Lingxi, for very insightful comments. We really appreciate it. You raised several really good questions, which I'm hoping that uh, that Lishu and, and and Ying will be able to address in just a moment. Let me remind our audience: you can put questions in the box. Uh, we have, for example, a, a question from Judith Mumiao. She thanks the presenters for their presentations and asks, I'm wondering on the application of this tool, and especially SIF, in the most arid parts of the Horn of Africa, whether the prosopis plant is widespread and tends to lead to more positive NDVI, and whether this will be calculated in a photosynthesis analysis reading. Um, Ying, I think this question is really addressed to you, and I, I think the my interpretation of the question is, for those not familiar, prosopis is a, a noxious weed, an invasive species that has been taking over parts of the drylands and range areas and causing lots of problems for especially pastoralists, uh, herders whose, whose animals will try to eat this and doesn't give them much nutrition. It has thorns that cause problems, et cetera. So I think the question is around how the SIF product can sort between desirable and undesirable vegetative growth. Over to you. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for clarification. Um, so I think that is a great question. Uh, I think SIF can defi definitely um, help, but uh, um, I have to say at this stage, really depending on the, the resolution is the bottleneck. So whether we can differentiate like different signal from say different vegetation types or different end members, which are kind of mixed signal in a single pixel of like safe uh, measurement. So that is like a key uh, uh, bottleneck uh, in my uh, personal opinion. So in the future, when we have finer spatial resolution, I think we can much better differentiate like uh, the different signals from different vegetation types. So actually we did some pilot work, try to separate the signals say from corn and soybean in the corn belt, uh, because even in the US corn belt, the, uh, the, uh, land, the, the, uh, the farm is already very big, but it can still not be resolved by the satellite uh, measurement of SIF. So we tried to develop a framework to differentiate the different crop types, which we successfully achieved that goal with machine learning techniques. So that means it gave us like confidence of it can be achieved. Um, but the issue is that um, to uh, in the landscape with like more complicated landscape, more uh, heterogeneous and fragmented landscape, we do need a finer spatial resolution in order to uh, you know better achieve like a better accuracy of that all mixing from different vegetation types. I hope that I answered your question. Yeah. 
Excellent. And in fact, Ying, if I can maybe uh, draw out from you a little bit more, I, I know that separate from the work under this USAID funded project, I know your lab has been working with, uh, with ground-based photography as well as remote sensing measures on rangelands in the Horn of Africa to try to parse uh, these different types of land cover. Do you want to briefly describe some of that work on on how SIF is being used to try to come up with fractional land cover measures at higher resolution? Okay, yeah, for that work, uh, so also in collaboration with Chris, so we use Landsat data set, the surface reflectance, uh, to uh, do a much finer classification of different uh, uh, rangeland types. Uh, so that we also on top of that, we try to separate photosynthetic elements versus non-photosynthetic and versus bare soil. Uh, so with that fractional information of those like three different elements in combination of SIF, then we can really separate the signal, the photosynthetic signal from different elements. So we are currently doing, uh, we already successfully achieve, uh, achieved the uh, separation of like different elements, uh, photosynthetic versus non-photosynthetic versus bare soil, and also the uh, classification of the subtype of different grassland and rangeland types. And next step is to try to combine that with uh, SIF in order to understand the productivity and how the, uh, the rangeland health have, uh, have been evolved due to climate change and anthropogenic, uh, anthropogenic uh, active activities. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Judith, for a great question that got us chatting about uh, quite a few relevant pieces here. Uh, if I can maybe come back to Li Xu, uh, picking up a, a something from Lang Xu's comments and a source of confusion that I know many of us social scientists often have in using temperature data. We don't fully appreciate the difference between air temperature and land surface temperature. Can you maybe explain that difference and why it matters for the sorts of, of modeling that many development and humanitarian agencies are interested in, where we're trying to predict you know, crop growth, we're trying to understand the impact on human health and development? Okay, thank you, Chris. Um, indeed, some people may uh, just misuse this land surface temperature and air temperature for some uh, cases. Uh, They're physically different, for example, I have explained land surface temperatures directly measure of the outgoing long wave radiation from the surfaces. So the actually the temperature represents the top uh, like a millimeter or top layer of the surfaces. So um, and compared to air temperature that we typically measure from the thermometers and then measure the moving airs, it's represent a aerodynamic temperatures. So they measure the uh, gas molecules, the, the vibrates of that. Uh, so they are, so you can see they are related because uh, if we have very uh, hot surfaces that have a, a strong radiative drive, then likely air temperature will be warmer. Um, and also, but the air temperature also influences by the wind, and so you have a horizontal mix. So uh, uh, showing a uh, different type of patterns. Uh, in generally, diurnal uh, cycle of land surface temperature and air temperature are somewhat 
uh, agree with each other showing much warmer during the daytime, but their peak uh, reached to different timing. For example, land surface temperature have the hottest uh, uh, like a time uh, at about noon or 1 p.m. But we know air temperature we typically feel hottest in the later afternoon. And, uh, on, and also, um, if we are naturally using satellites that we can get the maps, um, the air temperature have typically much longer histories and then we can have more than 100 years uh, archive data to, to map to understand the climate changes. Uh, but those measurements only represent, typically represent a, a small footprint at a few hundred um, meters range. So even we have a, a like a graded product that is more like an interpolation between the uh, gaps uh, of different stations to create the spatially, uh, you know, complete um, uh, um, data. Um, but uh, for the LST, we are just directly, uh, you know, scanned using a very uniform sensors to to measure the temperature. And what uh, the, the last thing I want to mention is that because air temperature, if I measured on the ground, that is record uh, like uh, you know, all sky conditions, even cloudy days or windy days, we still have relative uh, good representation of the measurement. Um, but uh, for the land surface temperature, because it's measured from several uh, hundreds of kilometers away uh, from the ground, so it's mainly impacted by the clouds. So we have a lot of missing data that only have the accurate measurement under clear skies. Um, and, and, and is it accurate to say that um, one of the reasons that those of us interested in agriculture, especially mm -hmm. keen on LST data, is that soil temperatures and the temperatures during the early emergence of crops are much better reflected by LST than by air temperature. Once, a, once full grown maize gets to five foot, six foot, eight foot stature, air temperature becomes salient, but up until that point during most of the vegetative growth cycle, the land surface temperature is actually much more salient to growth patterns. Is that roughly correct from a yes. social scientist yes. interpretation? <laughs> Thank you to add that uh, aspect. Indeed, also uh, an LST is more sensitive to surface condition changes and much greater diurnal variations. So the signal can be much easier to pick up uh, from the LST than air temperature. Mm -hmm. Excellent, thank you. May, um, may I, sorry, uh, may I add uh, one more point uh, in terms of the advantage of LST? So LST actually would be a much, much better indicator for plant water uh, stress. So because uh, because it is directly linked to like the uh, evapotranspiration from, from the plants. So if under uh, the uh, water stress, for example, if the soil moisture supply um, is, uh, uh, is not sufficient, then the plant will close its stomata to prevent the evaporative water loss. In that case, there would be less latent heat from evapotranspiration, but more sensible heat. That means under these conditions, then LST would be higher because more sensible heat. So that means that if you have like higher LST, that means there would be higher plant water stress. So, but for directly measuring soil moisture, which there is huge uncertainties and at a much closer resolution, but LST can already give you this much finer spatial resolution and uh, uh, also, you know, direct measurement of the plant status. And that is directly related to evapotranspiration, uh, which is uh, of course coupled with photosynthesis or plant productivity. So this also linked to another suggestion 
uh, uh, Dr. Liang Zhiyu uh, raised previously in terms of the current LST product at daily or even sub-daily uh, scale. So actually, uh, Jiaming, uh, my student, and also Lei Chu and I, we were also working on another separate paper funded by NASA, try to resolve the diurnal cycle, which is the, at the sub-daily scale, we have like hourly LST and also evapotranspiration at the 70 meter resolution. So we have both very fine temporal resolution and very fine spatial resolution of LST and uh, evapotranspiration from EcoStress, that is uh, a new mission launched by NASA on the International Space Station. So we just finished that paper and submitted to water research, uh, water research, uh, resource research. So that is actually um, a direct link to what uh, Dr. Yu raised that we are already working on that so that we will have much better, much improved uh, product for crop stress uh, monitoring in the future. Very Thank exciting. You. Thank you for sharing that. So Ying, if I can follow up with a, a similar question of clarification from the perspective of a social scientist who doesn't fully understand the physics or biology uh, that you're, you and your lab are working with, it strikes me that the, the exciting promise of SIF is twofold. First, now that your lab has developed these, this nice integration of higher spatial resolution and higher temporal resolution, you've sort of helped to solve some of the trade-offs that you illustrated so nicely. As you're getting data that are now at sufficiently fine spatial and temporal resolution, you're showing that we can actually predict crop yields with greater accuracy than the conventional vegetation indices. So that's sort of exciting advance one, and that shows a lot of promise. But maybe even the most exciting part is that because, if I'm understanding correctly, the vegetation indices on which so many of us rely, EVI and NDVI, these are, these are just index numbers. They're just, they have no theoretical foundation. They're just a, a statistical product generated from the whole array of measures across the spectral readings. Unlike those, which you can only generate by calibrating with local data, SIF has a, has a structural foundation to it. We know something about the biophysics of, of plant growth. So the promise of these uncalibrated models, as you describe it, is that once we've trained enough, we can actually start to predict crop growth with this high accuracy without having to get all the underlying ground truth data for every site in context. That this is, we're not there yet, but we can sort of see that point on the horizon now. Am I understanding correctly the two sources of, of real exciting promise in SIF? Yes, exactly. That's a very accurate uh, description or summary. So, uh, the, the, the differences between SIF and the vegetation indices is like, of course, for vegetation indices, it's very simple, very easy to use, and it has been there for decades and at a high resolution and available on both the free available, like open access, say for from NASA, ESA, uh, or even from like commercial satellites, super, super fine resolution, sub-meter uh, resolution. Uh, but they are empirical, so they are less, scalable across different landscapes, different agriculture systems, different crop types. Uh, so, uh, and they don't even have a unit. So they are just uh, like unitless indices. For SIF, it's different. It actually has a unit, it's a flux. So the flux that is the same unit as photosynthesis. So as you, uh, as I uh, um, 
demonstrated in the very beginning. So the uh, chlorophyll fluorescence emission occurs during the actual photosynthetic machinery. So they, because they happen during the same process, so that's why it is a direct, direct proxy for photosynthesis. So it is a flux. So we have already developed this theoretical relationship between fluorescence and photosynthesis. And that relationship, mathematical relationship was funded uh, or grounded on the basic physiological theories. So now we can predict uh, or estimate photosynthesis directly from SIF as like shortcut from direct remotely sensed optical signal. The next step is try to link the productivity or photosynthesis to the yield. So that so that's why I was saying uh, for future direction, we should link that mechanistic SIF and uh, photosynthesis relationship with crop um, uh, crop uh, prediction models, so that we can fully take advantage of SIF to the uh, to directly predict the yield. But on the technical side, we really have to resolve the like coarse resolution of the existing satellite SIF. Uh, with safe capability. But in the future, we are going to have more missions, which will provide a much finer spatial resolution. But if you want to look at the historical period, then we really need to augment the existing data set with our approaches developed so that we can have a longer time period. But for the future, of course, we see the great potential and promise with the fine resolution uh, uh, measurements directly. Outstanding, very exciting. Thank you for offering that helpful explanation. As some of the audience might be interested in, in looking at these data, looking at presentations that have been given on these data, looking at the underlying papers for those who really have an appetite for the technical details, all of those details are available on the broader USAID funded project website. And so I'm going to invite uh, Meta Bulumala to come briefly walk the audience through the project website so you understand where you can find these materials if you wish them. Over to you, Meta. Hi. So as Chris Barrett said, um, this website holds papers, presentations, project reports, and data sources. And so the link is right up on the screen. And um, once you go to the website, you can even find this, this slide deck. Um, so next slide, please. So you can just briefly learn about the research team and um, including the some of the presenters today, um, like Professor Ying Sun and Professor Lei Xu. Next slide. And then also you can see some of the papers that they spoke about, um, learn more about SIF and um, LST products. So there's a couple papers here that you can learn more about um, the information today. And again, the presentation from this webinar will be here on the website. It's already there right now, as well as if you want to register for the second webinar that's next week, the registration is here and um, feel free to uh, register right here and you can see other presentations. And then the project reports, that's right up on the website as well, and data sources. So a lot of talking about different LST pro um, data sources and the SIF data sources, they're all right here and ready for you to explore and learn more about. 
And finally, the, the code for, uh, that will be more discussed in webinar two is also there if you want to play around and look there. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Meta. Really appreciate you walking the audience through the website. All of these materials will be available there after after today's webinar. And I just want to, to make a plug for, if you could advance to the next slide, please. I'd like to make a plug for the, the next webinar, next week's webinar. Today, we've been talking about basic data sources and the improvements that both of these research teams, those from Professor Hu's lab working on land surface temperature and those working from Professor Sun's lab working on SIF, they've made these important advances in, in essential earth observation data so that we can begin to, to model and understand with greater spatiotemporal precision patterns of, of agricultural development, especially around crop growth. But much of the purpose of that is to feed into models that predict and measure and track poverty and malnutrition, especially in, in rural low-income areas for any of a variety of purposes, whether it's targeting interventions, it's simply for mapping to be able to describe for policymakers different zones of influence patterns, whether it's for, for project monitoring or, or impact evaluation or for early warning to be able to identify areas that might need intervention upcoming. So that this the natural culmination of improved data is improved prediction and improved measurement and monitoring. And machine learning applications in those tasks have enjoyed a very rapid uh, advance across a, a large number of institutions. This literature is moving very quickly. In next week's webinar on the 28th from 8 to 9.30 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, we'll have a set of speakers who will present their work trying to use these sorts of data streams and machine learning methods to improve the, the prediction and, and monitoring of poverty and malnutrition indicators. So uh, Dr. Linda McBride, now with the Center for Economic Studies at the US Census Bureau, will present as will Dr. Yan-Yan Liu, a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and Chris Brown, uh, an advanced PhD candidate here at Cornell. And at the end of it, uh, Dr. Rob Voss, who's the division director for markets, trades, and institutions, at IFPRI will, will summarize and discuss this line of work and its broader implications, especially in policy space. And Meta, from whom you just heard, will again show the website for any audience who missed today's presentation. But, and here's the teaser for those who are interested in the technical side, she'll also walk you through annotated code. So we've, we're making the code for the underlying estimation work that's being presented in webinar two we're making that code publicly available with annotations in Python and R to help people to, to translate and adapt to the code to their own setting if they so desire. So please join us next week on the 28th at 8 a.m. Eastern time in the U.S. Uh, for the second webinar in the series. And I just want to close by thanking uh, IFPRI and the Food Security Portal for hosting this event and USAID and European Commission for their support of the underlying research project and the Food Security Portal respectively. So with, with that, let me close and thank you all for taking time to join us today. I hope you appreciate, as I do, the, the really rich inputs that have been described by Professor 
Ku and Professor uh, Sun and the, the really helpful comments by Dr. Yu at, uh, at IFPRI. So thank you very much, each of you, for taking time to share your accumulated wisdom and learning with all of us. And thank you, the audience, for taking time to join us and tune in. Take care, everyone. Stay well. Bye-bye.